John chapter 19, we've come this far, beginning at verse 31. It says, the Jews therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not be remaining on the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record and his record is true and he knoweth that what he says is true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So if every verse about a bone is gonna be fulfilled, so are the verses about us disappearing. Um, only John gives us this set of verses. Um, the synoptics, the other Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written long before this, and John knows as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, he puts his quill to the page, that he, he gives us the things that he stood in front of, eyewitness, that the others would not have known because he was the one who was there. And as an old man, this is still alive in his heart. He tells us there in verse 30, uh, 31, um, the Jews therefore, that word refers back to what had been said. What he told us is Jesus said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Luke tells us specifically, he said, Father into thy hands will I commend my spirit, bowed his head, and gave up the ghost. And we see clearly the picture of Jesus here departing of his own will, knowing his work is done. It is finished. The Jews therefore, because of the things that had taken place, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, they besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So it is the preparation. <laughs> there is a preparation for every Sabbath. I've been in, uh, in Israel and Jerusalem in the homes of Orthodox Jews on Sabbath. And preparation day is Friday before the sun goes down. When the sun goes down, and three stars are visible, that's the beginning of the next day. So on Friday night, when that happens, that's the beginning of the Sabbath. So Friday's the preparation day. All your shopping, all of your cooking, uh, all of your cleaning, anything you want to do. So they all have crock pots going that they, uh, they started the day before. They got everything, so they really have to do anything. And it was really wonderful to sit with a family and just look at Jerusalem all day and uh, this was the preparation for the Sabbath. Now it tells us that this was a high day. It's a particular Sabbath. It is 
the Sabbath of the Passover week. Passover was one day, but it had been evolved into being part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so they called it the Passover week. And this is the Sabbath of the Passover week, which makes it a high Sabbath. It is also the Sabbath that begins for the Jews, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Ingathering. Um, and they counted seven weeks from this Sabbath to when Pentecost would begin. Also, this Sabbath is important because Leviticus tells us the day after this Sabbath, the priest was to go into the temple and wave the first shock of grain, looking forward to the harvest that would come on Pentecost. So there's a triplet of things here that make this Sabbath particularly important. And of course, what an incredible picture that Christ on the day he rises is the day the priest is in there waving the shock of grain. Paul tells us he was the first fruits of those who slept. And 50 days later, when Pentecost comes, 3,000 are gathered in and, and just continue to be gathered in the greater harvest. It's all coincidental, I'm sure, the way all of that worked out. But this is the high days. Now, the interesting thing is the Jews, the, the hypocrisy is they've just killed their Messiah, but they're worried about the Sabbath being fulfilled, which they worried about all through his ministry. There was always tension there. And it said in Deuteronomy 21 that you should not leave a body on a tree hung up, exposed. When the Sabbath comes, it should be taken down. So they're more conscientious about that, these quote unquote religious leaders, than they are about the fact that their Messiah has just breathed his last. So they come to Pilate and I ask him to break the legs of those that were on the cross. Now, the Romans called that the crura fragium. You can look it up, crura fragium. It actually meant to break the legs in Latin. It usually was not used. The Romans would, had perfected crucifixion. Persians started it, the Romans developed it. And it was to, to sustain pain. That, that you would be on that cross sometimes for days, usually, a couple days before you died. The Romans would leave you to rot and the vultures come to eat you in front of everyone to make their point. Occasionally when there was a special occasion, they used a crurifragium, they would come up and break the legs because then the person on the cross couldn't push themselves up to breathe. It's an interesting process. Actually, I think when they slumped down, they inhaled, but they had to push up to exhale and breathe in again. And as long as they could push up on the spike through their feet, they could do that. But once the legs were broken, they could no longer push up and they asphyxiated. They, they died shortly after that. And that's what the Jews are asking Pilate to do here. It wasn't to increase suffering, it was to hasten death. Interesting picture. And normally, you know, these Jews are thinking, well, the body of these two thieves and Jesus are going to be taken down and thrown into Gehenna, the, the Valley of Hinnom, and smolder there with rotten bodies and so forth, a place of burning. But it is interesting that Tiberius, who was the present emperor, Caesar, had made a decree 
that if your relative, your friend was crucified, you did have the right to take him and give him a burial instead of throwing him in the trash heap. So there's all kinds of things that are kind of floating around this. We know that Jesus has to be buried on the same day as his death because he said significantly he would rise on the third day. The idea is in three days. It's not three 24-hour days. It's on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, to the Jews, it's all the same, the idiom. And that has to take place. So God's sovereignty is here uh, to give us the picture of Christ. He bows his head and he gives up the ghost. Nobody took his life. He gave it up, John 10, 17 and 18. And John's watching this. He's standing there. He's an eyewitness. And he tells us then in verse 32, it says, Then came the soldiers, Pilate's order, and break. That means to smash to pieces. That word break there. They break the legs of the first and of the other that were crucified with him, with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they break not his leg. So this process now begins. They, they come and they break the legs. They used a mallet, like a big mallet, um, sometimes an iron bar. Those crucified were not that high off the ground. They were able to give him the sour wine on a piece of hyssop. So the legs were near enough the ground. Sometimes jackals would eat the body from the feet up. Um, and it was easy then to get to the legs and break them. The centurion is in charge. There's a four-man team on each cross, the three crucified. And they break, they're breaking now the legs. They've done this before. They understand the process. And the interesting thing to watch here is, you know, we have this penitent thief who said, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And after that, he's got to get his legs broken too. You think, isn't that, you know? And some of us struggle with this. Look, um, he, re, he, he's, he had received God's grace. He had received God's pardon. And that was completely unmoved by his experience. Because he was the recipient of God's grace, and of his pardon of sin didn't mean that in this physical frame there wouldn't be suffering before he saw paradise. And sometimes as Christians, we do struggle with that. So we have here, interestingly, one thief penitent going to paradise, one thief impenitent going to hell. One on either side of Christ. And the truth is, those who are repentant and those who are unrepentant must all taste death and that for 2000 years those that are repentant and those that are unrepentant must all taste death unless the rapture interrupts that process which is what we're hoping but that's that's the history of mankind and this incredible picture here they come and this guy i don't know what he's thinking you know, what are his thoughts? You promised me I'll be in paradise, now they're smashing my legs. Or is he thinking, smash away. 
smash away. This is going to end it faster. I'm not going to hang here for days. You see, because the soldier smashing his legs is God's servant fulfilling his word to the man in his sovereignty. There was no other way for that to happen. It had to happen. Interesting. Now, question, of course, we look at this. Why did they go to one thief and smash his femurs and his tibia, smash the legs? And why did they then pass Jesus in the middle and go and smash the other guy? And look, again, we mentioned earlier in the study that they found the remains in a uh, tomb in the northern Kidron Valley in 1968 of a man from this time period, this beginning of this century, uh, who was crucified, and they found the, the nails, the, the way the wrists were split and the feet and all. But the other thing about that remain, the remains they found is one leg was completely shattered. The other one was fractured. And that person had gone through this experience. So they come to the one thief, they smash his legs, they smash, they break his femurs, they take away his ability to breathe. And, and they come to the other one and they do the same thing. But I'm imagining they were hesitant to smash the legs of the one in the middle. Matthew and Luke and Mark give us a clear picture of the fact that when Jesus did breathe his last, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, 80 foot high, 26 foot wide, woven almost a hand's breadth in width, torn from the top of the bottom, three in the afternoon when all the priests were officiating, you know they came scurrying out of there. That was noisy coming from the top to the bottom. The, the centurion and the soldiers didn't see that but they saw the three hours of darkness and they must have been frozen in that. They heard Jesus when they were nailing him, these Roman soldiers nailing him to the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know what they, and he kept saying that over and over. They heard him say, Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit. He bowed his head. There was an earthquake. And this centurion in charge of these soldiers were told in Matthew and Luke said, truly, this was the Son of God. So he's not eager to break the legs of this middle person on the cross. And I'm sure that he delays that action by the soldiers. And it tells us, interestingly, it says, but when they came, it's the, they came upon and saw. The idea is they paused and they examined. These are professional executioners. Understand by the time John is writing, 90 AD, there are major heresies in the church that say that Jesus was just a phantom, or they say Jesus swooned, he didn't really die on the cross in the cool, you know, the tomb, he, he woke up again, that it wasn't real death. John is blowing all of that out of the water. If you think any of that's true, professional executors tell you you're a liar. It's their specialty, it isn't yours. And they came and examined that middle figure and they said, he's gone, he's dead. And they didn't smash his thighs. Understand, 
Nobody disobeys Pilate or their commanding officer. These three are crucified together. And Jesus is dead in six hours instead of days. In fact, Mark tells us in chapter 15, verses 44 and 45, that when Jesus was dead, when this is over, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and begs for the body of Jesus. And it says, Pilate is astounded that he's already dead. It's only been six hours. He says, but when he finds out from the centurion, so the centurion in this scene goes to Pilate and said, he's dead. He was dead when we got there. And we made sure we tested that out. He was dead. We didn't have to break his legs. And of course, then he gives the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea. They come, they examine, they see that he's already dead. And then it says one of them, it says they, they saw, you know, he was dead already. They break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. So this picture. John is going to tell us in the next verse, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I saw this. He's making sure they understand this is the word that became flesh. This was God in a human frame. And he died a human death in a human body. I was there and I watched it. And the piercing of the side was not cruelty. It was not brutality. It was not intended to kill the person. He's already dead. It was a post-mortem piercing that the Romans used intended to testify of the victim's death. So no doubt the soldier had the centurion's permission. Yeah, go on. The interesting thing it says when he pierced his side, he must have been on his left, we would assume, over by where his heart would be, that blood and water issues out. Is that symbolic? John tells us about it. I have to believe he is just struck by the scene. Is it literal blood and literal water? Is it body fluid? We don't know. Experiments that have been done on cadavers, I'm hoping not to be called a cadaver someday, but experiments that have been done on cadavers in regards to this, they find that between the lining of the rib cage and the lining of their lung with this kind of suffering, sometimes up to two liters of fluid will be there when death takes place. Then it just sits there. And the serum, which is clear, rises to the top. And the corpuscles, the bottom becomes deep scarlet red, deep red. And if he hit that when he was going, all of it couldn't come from the pericardium. When he was, if he hit that sack, what John saw was that deep red come gushing out first and then saw it turn clear. Or is this just miraculous blood and water? We don't know. Uh, what is the symbolism? We're not sure of that either. John is obviously impressed with this. He writes in his first epistle, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. 
And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three are one. So in heaven, the spirit, the father, and the word, John told us the word became flesh and dwell among us. On earth, he says, there's this, there's a humanity to this that's undeniable because you have the water and the blood and the spirit saying, this is real. This really happened. This is true. And John is putting that before us. We don't know as we look at this, is there, is there really some miraculous thing that took place? The thing that he's trying to communicate, and I'm sure there was, I th you know, blood and water can symbolize many things. But John is trying to say he was dead. He was dead. Don't let anybody tell you, you know, this or that, or he only swooned and they stole his body, or the, the heresies were saying that he was just spirit, he wasn't really a body, and so forth, all of these things. John said, no, no, don't listen to any of that. Look what he says in verse 35, and this is important. And he that saw it bears record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that what he saith is true, that you might believe. Listen, that verse is unique in all four gospels. It is exceptional. There is none of the other gospel writers and nowhere else in John's gospel where he interrupts the narrative to speak to the reader to give his personal testimony. This happens nowhere else in the Gospels. This verse is remarkable. The Greek scholars translate the verse this way. And he that has seen has borne his testimony. And that one knows that he says things true in order that, interesting, you too may believe. It, it reads literally almost a little easier than just reading the verse. But this is what John says there remarkably. He says, and he that has seen, he that saw, it's in the perfect tense, which is one of John's things. And what that means is he that saw and is still seeing He's saying, you don't understand, I'm over 90 years old, and this is as real to me today as it was the day I stood at the foot of that cross. I can't get it out of my mind, my memory. I saw it then, I see it now. That which I saw and I'm still seeing, and that which I've borne witness to, same thing, perfect tense, and I'm still bearing witness to after all of these decades, the cross of Christ. What else is there? John says it's still his message after all these decades. He says, he that has seen and is still seeing, and he that bear and is still bearing testimony, and his testimony is true, King James, it's his testimony is genuine is genuine's emphatic there too. The idea is there's nothing false about it at all. His testimony, his testimony, this is genuine. This is genuine, he says, remarkably. 
And that one knows, he says he knows, that one knows and is knowing that what he says is true, the things he says are true. He says, in order that you, and the Greek is this, in order that you too, in order that you also may believe. He's believing. And, and this remarkable verse, look, it's, he's saying here, look, he interrupts the narrative of the gospel. And he says, I was there. He's speaking to his readers. This word has been passed down through the centuries and the Holy Spirit through John is speaking to you and I this morning saying, look, I was there. I saw it and I am still seeing it. I can't get the image of our sweet Savior hanging on the cross. Life ebbed away. Blood and water issuing forth. I'm still seeing it. And it's the testimony I bore and I am still bearing. As he writes decades later, I'm still bearing this testimony. And he said, understand, my testimony is genuine. I was there. There's nothing phony about it. It was genuine. And what I'm speaking is true. And the reason I'm doing that is so that you too, you also, speaking to us 2,000 years later, so that you also might believe. I was there. How old is he? 17, 18 years old. We know he's young. I watched this whole thing. can't get it out of my mind. It's still there. Still, it's as vivid as when it happened. And every time I bear witness of it, it's the same thing, and I'm still bearing witness of it. And what I'm telling you, what you're reading this morning, is genuine. It's genuine. The world out there make, make fun of your faith and of Jesus Christ. Look at the condition it's in. We sure wish we knew what they know, huh? I'm doing this so that you may believe as well as I do. Looking at us through the generations remarkably. And he says then this. He says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Now certainly Psalm uh, in the Psalms, it tells us in Psalm 30, where am I at here? Uh, 34, 19, many are the, this is 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Listen, he keepeth all his bones and not one of them is broken. Certainly John is thinking of that, but probably the greater picture is it tells us in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 that when it comes to the Passover lamb, they should eat the whole thing and not a bone of that lamb should be broken. John has told us this is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John says, this is happening to fulfill 
the scripture. You know, none of his bones are broken. They broke the bones of the other guys. His were not broken. God's sovereignty, all of the legions of Rome could not have broken a single bone in Jesus' body because God is sovereign. He had said to Pilate in chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus said, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto you at the greater sin. Jesus said to Pilate, you have any power over me unless it's given to you from above. You have power to crucify me. You don't have power to break my bones. You don't have it. Muster all the legions in Rome. <laughs> not, not a single bone is going to be broken. And John said that was fulfilled. I was there. That was fulfilled. I saw it. God sovereign. And then interesting in verse 37, he says, again, another scripture saith. He doesn't say this scripture is fulfilled because it's only a partial fulfillment. And he says, again, another heteros, another of a different kind of scripture says this. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. There is a partial fulfillment here. There is a reality here, but it is a verse that is not completely fulfilled like the verse above it. It is a verse that says something and there's a partial fulfillment because ultimately the fulfillment of that is ahead of us. There was the partial fulfillment, but it awaits the fulfillment of the great day. Jesus, in Matthew 23, as he's moving into the Olivet Discourse, says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest those that are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thee under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. And now, behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and henceforth you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 are speaking about the Lord of hosts. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Watch the news. This is just a warm-up. This is just a warm-up. Watch the news. Watch the things that are going on around us. You know, in some places, the scripture speaks to us about these different things. But it says, I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. And it says this, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. It's the last time the word grace is used in the Old Testament. First time with Noah, last time here. I will pour upon the house of Israel and Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Jesus said, henceforth you'll see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to what he says. I'll pour upon them the spirit of grace and supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. 
when all of the nations are coming against Jerusalem and Jesus returns in his glory and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he says, when that takes place, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And it says, and they're gonna mourn for me like one mourns for an only son. Imagine the greatest travesty, the most wicked and cruel slaughter in human history above all else is mankind and Judaism killing their own Messiah. They weren't just killing somebody at a daycare center. They weren't just killing someone on a battlefield. They were killing the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, Jehovah God, their redeemer. And the way they killed him was cruel. And he did that willingly and deliberately for us. This is a picture of the greatest travesty. And it says, when he comes, they're gonna look upon me whom they pierced. Imagine what will happen in Israel. It says a fountain's gonna be open of redemption. You, you read through Zechariah, it says some wonderful things. But all the tribes of the earth are gonna mourn. The book of Revelation says, behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all of the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, all of the nations of the world. They can make fun of what you and I believe now. They can mock us, you know, as escapist or something. I am 100% escapist, mock me all you want. But Jesus understanding what was coming, it tells us that when he wrote in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that he wept, he convulsed weeping and said, if thou had only known this thy day and the things that belong to your peace, henceforth your house is left unto you desolate, your children are gonna die in the streets, Jerusalem's gonna be leveled. He saw the history of the Jewish people and he wept and he wept and he wept but they are his chosen people. We are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The, the promise that Benjamin Netanyahu quoted to the United Nations a few weeks ago, that God said, I will bless them that bless thee and I will curse them that curse thee has not been revoked. God is sovereign. God is sovereign to do what he will do. Very interesting article in the Jerusalem Post this week by one of their major rabbis who said, this is a struggle for us because we believe God is a God of love and our children are laying decapitated. All of these terrible things have happened and we are unable to harmonize everything. There are things that we know about him and there are things we do not understand about what he allows. But he's coming. And every knee is going to bow. Things heaven, things in the earth, things under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
So look, we have great hope today in this world that's insane in the Middle East and in Ukraine and Washington, you know, just the insanity. I know you sense it. You look around and think everything is coming unglued. It's just on every front. This is crazy. Nothing makes sense. Well, all of that is harking of the return of our Lord and Savior, first for his church, then with his church. He comes for his church in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at an hour you think not. And I'm glad all the cameras are going to be on. And then seven years later, he comes with his church. And every eye is going to see him. And they're going to, the Jews are going to look on the one whom they pierced. And he's going to come. And he's going to set up a kingdom centered in Jerusalem. And men are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation is not going to learn na- war against nation anymore. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Are you ready? Let's get the program going. Uh, look, as long as we're here, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Be praying over the situation. And on both sides, there's a lot of innocent people caught in this. It's a tragedy. Pray for Christ to come. If, if you don't want to do that, then pray for him to come and get me out of here. You can stay <laughs> if you want. But pray that if he's tarrying for any length of time, that he would move one more time with a great revival upon the face of this entire earth. It's going to happen after the rapture. The greatest sin gathering in human history during the tribulation. But as we're here, I pray we may see friends, relatives, multitudes, different countries. I pray we just see it happen one more time. It doesn't make, to me, the only two options are rapture or revival. Nothing else makes sense, right? Let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. We come to a great section in John's gospel next week that I love. Just remarkable. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, what's your hope? Look, if you can make fun of us today, but remember the video so that when we all disappear, you know what happened. Um, Or you can be one of those. There was a thief on each, each side. Both deserved to go to hell. One did and the other didn't because he simply looked to Christ. He couldn't do anything, couldn't be confirmed. He couldn't take communion. His hands are nailed down. The only thing he needed to move was his heart and ask Christ for his forgiveness. If you've not done that, you need to do that. Listen, here's a guy 2,000 years ago saying, I was standing there. I was eyewitness. The closest copy of Homer's Iliad is 500 years after he lived. This is a guy standing at the cross saying, I'm eyewitness. I watched it happen. And between Greek and Latin manuscripts and early church writings, there's over 25,000 copies before the year 500. There's nothing more attested to in the world than the Bible. But nobody, there's a, there's a dark form moving behind the scenes that doesn't want anybody to understand that. But this is the Bible. And what it says to you today, John says, listen, I was there, I saw it. 
and I'm telling you so that you can believe too, just the same way I have. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you can make that decision today. Or you can go home, turn on TV and try to figure out where your hope is, right? He loves you, he has you here, he has you listening. The end of the service, we encourage you to get up here. If a friend brought you, they're gonna say, come on, I'll go up. We would love to pray with you, give you a copy of the scripture. See you make that decision for Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Lord, I know you've overheard. And here we are, Lord, all these centuries later, reading this verse that you held up in front of us, this break in the narrative, this eyewitness speaking to us his own personal testimony, appealing to the reader. Lord, we're so thankful. And Lord, we do look at the world we're in, it's so troubled. It's so obvious principalities and powers are moving behind the scenes. We can almost, Father, hear the laughter of the enemy as thousands are perishing. We do pray, Lord, for the peace of Jerusalem again. We do pray you come quickly, Lord. We have kids and grandkids and aged and infirm, Lord, and just pray that you would come and, and take your bride home, carry us over the threshold. And Lord, as we're here, whatever length of time that may be, pour out your Holy Spirit, Father. Bring revival, we pray in your name, amen.